Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. again it's the 2nd of January 2023 well if you had said to me what was it one 28 years ago when Mooney Goes Wild first started Aina will know the date exactly because she knows everything that this would be still on air in 2023 I would have said you're mad Aina I would have said you're mad well you're always telling us we're mad but it is we are on the we are on the air 28 years who would have credited can you remember any other life Derek no, I can't. But you know the exact date. Oh, yeah, it was May. It was May when we actually began the programme, May of that year. But look, it's the year of it, so it's the 28th year, so I wouldn't be quibbling over the actual date itself. Happy New Year, Aina Nilana. Thank you so much, Derek. And the same to your good <laughs> self. And Happy New Year, Dr Richard Collins. Hello, Derek. Yes, looking back, what an extraordinary privilege. When you think of it, how many people would one speak to in the course of one's life face to face? And if you added that total up, it would only be a fraction of the number of ears that hear you in any one of these programmes. Now multiply that by 52 and multiply that again by all the years we've been on air. What what an extraordinary privilege. How unjust in a way that the puny little thoughts that I have anyway, I won't say anything about Ianas or Niles, but puny little thoughts I have should merit that degree of exposure. Those huge transmitters blasting it out over the country, people picking it. A phrase that you might use, an image or something will stick with somebody somewhere it's so unjust. Well, actually, Richard, I remember some years ago when we were discussing the Dawn Chorus and how we would describe what was going on in the Dawn Chorus in a press release. We were moving from being just a nationwide Dawn Chorus to an international Dawn Chorus. And we were going to have countries involved as far away as India and South Africa. And you came up with this concept that the Dawn Chorus never actually sleeps. And you said, and we put it in writing, you said... The dawn chorus never sleeps. It moves like a giant wave across the face of the earth. At this moment, somewhere in the world, the birds are waking up and bursting into song. And I just thought that was fantastic. Congratulations, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I'm flattered to think of it. It's Hegel, actually, the great German philosopher who said everything is in flux. The world isn't fixed. It's on the road to something else. It's a work in progress. And that's a terrible idea when you think about it, but that's the way. <laughs> Richard, uh, thank you. Niall. A very happy new year to you, Derek, you and to too. you, Richard, and to you, Aina, and to all of our listeners, of course, as well. Uh, Derek, I hope you had a lovely Christmas. Lots of mince pies and, and Christmas pudding and sherry trifle and all see? things. <laughs> any New Year's resolutions, may I ask? Yes, not to eat any more mince pies. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could all learn from that, actually, absolutely. But here we are for another year, as you said, going into our 28th of this programme. I think that's absolutely astonishing. I'm really looking forward to it. That's the beauty of nature. We never run out of stories to tell, no, and we never will. We could be on every day of the week, and I hope you enjoyed our offerings over the Christmas period, a wonderful programme about the holly and the ivy, mm-hmm. Zarafa the giraffe, and then that special on Waiters last Saturday morning, and I think you enjoyed that too. We'll talk to Terry Flanagan a little bit later on. Let's get down to business. Aina, just before Christmas, you attended a conference, I think you launched actually a service.
survey in Trinity College, Dublin. I did indeed, Derek. I was launching the results of the Coast Watch Annual Autumn Shore Survey 2022. And this survey has been carried out every year in Ireland since 1987. But before that, in 1977, we did the Beach Bird Survey when I was in the Biological Records Centre. So we've been keeping eyes on our coastline for the last whatever we might say, 30, 40 years now, in fact. But this coastal survey then is much more advanced, of course, and it's joined up with the European survey as well. It's part of the European Coast Watch. So there are citizen scientists all around the country in all our different coastal counties. And not only are they just looking for birds on the beach, but they're studying biodiversity, they're studying water quality and threats, litter waste, all of those things. And the report then that I was launching at the end of last year in December was actually the results of the work they had done during 2022. And, you know, we're always saying, oh, there's more of this and everything's worse. But there was a bit of good news in that report to do with litter, surprisingly. Oh, yeah, what because was it? Because they count the results, every year they count all the bits of this they find and that they find and what's the most abundant. But because the single-use plastic directive has come in and it's forbidden to make any more single-use plastics, the amount of single-use plastic waste and litter that they found on the beach compared to other years was greatly reduced and now of course last year the biggest number of things were plastic bottles and cans and when now they bring in the the actual tax on those people will be gathering them up and getting money back on them so that will be a way of reducing those numbers as well. The bad thing in the report was the great increase in dead seabirds, probably from avian flu, lots of gannets and that. That was way up on other years. I was recalling way back in the 70s, I was telling them at the launch, we were counting oiled birds at that time. The Betelgeuse and other big ships had burst and covered everything with oil. But that's all done away with now. And it was the bird flu last year that caused the deaths of those birds. They were looking at the water quality as well, caused by raw sewage, caused by nitrates in the inflow. And by having those figures, by going around the shoreline and counting the figures and handing them in, it gives ammunition to people like us, the environmental people who want things changed. Rather than saying it's all going to hell in a handcart, we can say we have actually got figures for how many there were, how much it was compared from one year to the next, and we need the law changed. And that's why the single-use plastic directive was such good, good news, because it has an impact on that litter and waste on the beaches. So this is a great report. It's up on the website and it'll be compared with the rest of the other European countries as well because they're all done to the same standards and they can be compared one to another. So Coastwatch Annual Autumn Shore Survey 2022 was what I was launching with great aplomb and with my usual skill. <laughs> Richard. Yes, it's great to see citizen science uh, taking off the way it has because when I was young, we were far too much of an audience looking at things, looking at television programs. We didn't participate. But participation is much more effective. If you participate, you learn in a way you would never learn if you were a, a, just an observer. And if you have a stake in what's going on, that will strengthen your resolve to be a conservationist, a true conservationist. Richard, you'll remember many years ago we made a documentary about the robin, which you said was the true Christmas bird. 
Yes, indeed, it is the true Christmas bird in the sense, well, in this part of the world, it has become associated with Christmas. Partly, I think, because the postmen in Britain wore red outfits and, of course, they brought gifts and there was post on Christmas Day. So they brought gifts on Christmas Day and the robin, of course, with its red breast was begging for food, loved to come to the door for bread or whatever handout you had. So the two got connected so it is the true Christmas bird only on the surface because a bird more unsuited to the season of peace and goodwill you could not find the robin is a very aggressive little bird a very antisocial little bird he drives other birds away but he's able to fool us into thinking he's a cuddly friendly Christian type but he's not. <laughs> and Niall, that's what you want to talk about now. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the, the perfect link actually Richard, thank you very much for that because uh, over the Christmas period I was really interested to read up on some research that's actually come from Turkey, uh, really interestingly another, another Christmas bird, but the country of Turkey in this <laughs> yeah, case Because actually what Richard said was the robin, not the turkey, is the <laughs> true Christmas bird. Well absolutely so we got both in this story. So yes, researchers in a university in Turkey, in Istanbul to be precise, did some experiments on robins. So we've known in recent years, and people noticed this during COVID as well, that when you get traffic noise or indeed the absence of traffic noise, you can hear the birds better. And it has an impact particularly on birds in urban areas. But what the researchers in Turkey wanted to find out was how will robins in rural areas that aren't normally exposed to traffic noise to any great degree, how would they react when traffic noise is played to them? So they did this at certain robin territories and robins have territories all year round. And as Richard said, they're very aggressive. They really defend that patch. And what they found was that for the rural robins who aren't accustomed to to traffic noise, when they hear it, they become instantly more aggressive. They become more likely to fight their neighbours. They sing more and sing more loudly to try and compete with that traffic noise, but something about it stresses them. But then interestingly, when they do that experiment with robins, the exact same species that have been reared in urban centres in Istanbul, where there's lots of noise and lots of traffic, when those robins are exposed to traffic noise, they actually become calmer. So they become less aggressive. It's almost like they've become so accustomed all their lives to hearing traffic noise that it doesn't have that much effect on them anymore at all. So it just shows how some wild birds, it seems, can become accustomed to levels of stress. And there's parallels there for us humans as well. Do humans who live in urban areas and are more accustomed to these noises, do we become more attuned to them, more accustomed to them, more relaxed in their presence? And if we're suddenly subjected to something novel, even if it's not directly a threat Mm -hmm. to us, do we perceive it somehow subconsciously as a threat? Because that seems to be what's happening with these robins. It's putting them on edge when they hear the traffic noise. And it'd be interesting to see as well, does this have a similar response or elicit a similar response response in other bird species that aren't known for being so territorial. So robins, you never see them in flocks together. They don't like to be in company. No, they are very territorial. They are indeed. So and they've been singing outside my house since, well, they, they never stop singing, but particularly November. I really do notice them in the wintertime singing yes. solo. Yeah, that's right. They're one the of the winter song. That's right. They have different songs throughout the year, but they're one of the only birds that we have that will sing throughout all twelve months of the year. But in the winter, you can tell the the difference between the, with their song because it's it's more melancholy to my yeah. ears. It kind of slows down, and then as ah, spring I'm approaches, singing here on me own. It's terrible <laughs> cold. I've no bird. <laughs> Very, that's a perfect impression. Absolutely, yeah. all those years of the dawn course not been wasted on you, Derek. Uh, but then, as the daylight levels increase, as we move towards the spring, they start to speed up a bit, like turning up the speed on an old record player. If people yeah. remember those. 
and delighted it's spring oh look at that one over there and then when you get to the summer all of a sudden they're much more jaunty more bubbly so it's almost the same song but just sped up and that makes them sound much more lively so it's interesting to hear how the environment affects the sounds these birds what do you think about that Rich? that is very interesting and there's been a lot of work on various animals that do that background noise Uh, great tits in Berlin a similar kind of result yes the birds take stock of their situation and they can adapt up to a point at any rate and ameliorate situations which don't suit them fully. And of course in the winter time the female robin sings as well because she also holds territory. But I was just wondering Niall, does the female robin sing in the dawn chorus? I don't think she only sings in the winter, does she? So there's been it's just some research done on this quite recently and during the summertime it is predominantly the male that sings. Females will sing on occasion and it also seems if for some reason in that pair if something has happened to the male and he has disappeared or been killed or something, the female, if she's raising that brood alone, she will step into that role. She can switch into that singing mode and will defend that territory just like the male would. So what happens really in the nesting season she, she more defers to the male or hands that duty over to him for the, for the breeding season but if she has to step up to the plate she will and then when the breeding season is over she behaves just like the male. Indeed you can't really tell the difference uh, outside the breeding season. Male and female behave pretty much identically. Any difference in the song? No, as far as we can tell, no. And the, the interesting thing about that is that robins are songbirds, uh, to use that, that phrase, uh, so they learn their songs from their parents. So the male and the female are learning the same song and it seems that the females, they, they don't discriminate. They learn the song, be it from their mother or their father. In fact, it's usually their father who'd be singing at that form, in the formative stage when they're young, still in the nest. So that's where the females get that song from. So no, the song is pretty much identical. But males, if you take us humans, have, generally speaking, deeper voices than females. Does that happen across nature? Well, in, 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 in humans, that's a change that happens to, to human males when their voices break during puberty. And that's hormonally controlled. And it's also to do with differences in body size, not just in, in overall body mass, but also in, in the size of different organs and voice boxes and so on within us humans. With birds, it's quite different. So the male and female robin, they're physiologically more or less identical, apart from their reproductive systems. Other than that, they're very similar. They're the same size, they're the same shape, they have the same airways, they have the same... Uh, Syrinx or syrinx as it's sometimes called which is their uh, analogy for our larynx our voice box birds produce sound in a very different way uh, they do it by almost like a system of organ pipes where they blow air over them and they can contract the sides to make them wider or narrower and that changes the pitch and in doing that of course what they can do is they can harmonise with themselves and also the beauty of that is they can sing whether the air is going, coming in or going out so the actual mechanism between the male and the female robin making that sound is is very pretty much identical there's no way to tell the difference and actually the, the question of female birds song is something that more and more researchers are focusing on because there has been quite a degree of sexism within the study of biology for for birds and for other creatures as well and a lot of focus has been given to the way the males behave, the flashy plumage generally, the way that they would sing. What we're finding is although males in Europe are usually the only ones that sing, there are a few exceptions, uh, the robin being one, Around the world, particularly in the tropical and subtropical regions of the world, female birdsong is actually much more widespread than has been realised previously. And a lot of what has been thought to be male, or just, I suppose, um, misogynistically assumed to be male birdsong, actually turns out to be female birdsong. So you're somewhere like Costa Rica or Panama or Argentina or Brazil. Very often it's the females singing just as much as the males. I wonder if it's fair to refer to them as males and females, in the case of robins, at all in winter, because the gonads shrink and they are 
sexless largely uh, and indeed when you're ringing birds outside of the breeding season ringing robins you can't tell whether a bird in the hand is either a male or a female it then of course as the breeding season approaches you get a brood patch a thing like a raw steak the breast it loses its feathers and it looks like raw steak you blow on the belly and you can see this and then you know it's a female and in the case of the male the cloaca swells up in order to transfer the sperm to the female but it is a very temporary thing anyway in birds generally remember it's about sharing responsibility some birds feed the young with the female in other words they do some of the female male birds do some of the the females work by sometimes they incubate in some species the male incubates as well as the female so there's a sharing both ways so it's not surprising that the female shares some of the territory defence things that the male does. For instance, in the case of swans, when it comes to molt, mute swans molt at a different time. The male, when the babies are quite large, he sheds his feathers. He can't fly, so he can't do defence. And she becomes the great defender. And I've been attacked by female swans who put up a much better fight than their husbands did in their full feathered time. Then, of course, when she's grown her feathers... He's in business then, you see. So it's a kind of shared responsibility. Male, female, together. It's not one or the other. It's not binary. Well, there you go now. Just because we never studied the females, because they weren't worth studying, there's lots of things to be discovered. I had a book there was written a couple of years ago by a journalist, the thing was entitled Bitch, and it was talking about the female of, of animal species, of mammal species mostly, and all of the things that the male mammals were supposed to be doing when they studied the female mammals. In a lot of cases, loads of things were discovered, and a lot of this research was suppressed by the professors of the university who didn't want to be actually publishing stuff that showed that female animals were well up to the mark and could fight and could do all kinds of things, whereas they were supposed to consider to be submissive and passive and not aggressive like the males. So it made me wonder then about the actual gender of the people doing the research. If traditionally the scientists were men originally, you couldn't have people like Darwin studying female things and saying they were every bit as good as males. And it was a whole, the book was actually a whole gender thing about the people who did the research mm. rather than the things they were researching. So it's all up for grabs and it's great that you're talking about, you know, studying female birds or mammals and discovering things about them that do away with people's preconceptions of these things. So we don't know all about the world yet. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy as was said in Hamlet. Yeah, you spoke to Lucy Cook, Aina. She was the author. You spoke to her on this very programme. The book was called Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. Yes, it's really good to see more focus on this. We had the discussion a few months ago on the programme about why are animals often called he and mm. why is there sexism there? And it is a very good point. I think we should be more mindful of this uh, and it's good to see this discussed more. And it's also interesting how particularly a Victorian kind of morality and mores, how they have really coloured and still continue to this day to colour our perceptions of the natural world uh, in a really unfair way. And, it's, uh, and in doing that, we've actually restricted our own knowledge. There's far more interesting things that we need 
need to still learn about female animals, about gender in animals, about the lack of gender within animals, all of these things. And I think it's really good that this is being talked about more and more. See, Derek, at the top of the programme, I told you we'll never run out of things to talk no, about. No, anyway, we're back. And it's the new year. It's 2023. Welcome along to Moody Goes Wild. Nothing has changed or all changed, changed utterly, but nothing has changed here. Anyway, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Moody. There you'll find a very comprehensive archive of everything featured on our programmes. But now let's catch up with our old mate, Terry Flanagan. Terry, how are you today? Now, I was saying at the beginning of the programme that we are now entering our 28th year on air of Mooney Goes Wild. You weren't there from the beginning, were you? 28 years, can you believe it? (laughs) Yes, Derek, 28 years. It's absolutely amazing. I know Richard and Aina have been there since the beginning, but me, I'm there over 20 years, and the time, it's just flown by. In my case, it's been a pleasure travelling the length and breadth of the country, meeting lots of people and doing some really interesting reports. Speaking of reports, just before Christmas, I was down in Park Owen in Cork South Parish, where I met up with Maria Young of Green Spaces for Health. Maria and her colleagues have helped convert the former cemetery there, that's St John's, into a public park. Before this restoration, it was quite neglected and badly vandalised. But now it's been transformed into a little green oasis, rewilding certain areas, planting native trees and plants, putting in board boxes and much, much more. And Maria, well, she took great pleasure in showing this to me as we took a stroll around the park. Hi Terry, welcome to Park Owen in the heart of Cork City. Well, I can tell you this, I've been to Cork lots of times, but I've never been in this part. And it's just so quiet for a city centre region. Yes, you would be forgiven for thinking we're in the middle of the countryside here because for some reason we can't hear the traffic. And yet right there, that's the city centre. Yeah, all I can hear are the birds. I hear robins there singing away. And it's a little haven, really, for wildlife. It is. It's a refuge for wildlife. Uh, we're very lucky here. There is a lot of trees and habitation. There's plenty of opportunity for but birds. It wasn't always like this because I believe it was an old graveyard. Correct. Uh, this is a very ancient graveyard of St. John's. That cross that you can see down there is mm-hmm. a St. John's uh, of the Crusade. And yes, this was a graveyard. All the headstones were removed and they were taken out to Tory Top Road. There's a few headstones embedded in that piece there, but Yes, it's a graveyard. But you had an awful lot to do with it being changed. Not just you, but your organisation. Yes, uh, I'm from Green Spaces for Health. And in 2019, the local community guardie approached myself and my colleague, Denise Cahill from Cork Healthy Cities. And um, they asked us if there was anything we could do here in Park Owen because... um, it had. Uh, it was a place really where there was a lot of antisocial activity. Mm-hmm. A lot of the elderly neighbourhood here were afraid to walk down. Um, they didn't feel safe here. There was quite a bit of rubbish, and they asked us, "Was there anything we could do?" Okay, tell me a little bit about the organisation. I've been with Green Spaces for Health since 2019 and originally I was working here in this parish and now we've spread our wings and we're working over the entire south side of the city. And what have you done here in this park? Because anybody walking in here now they'd certainly say, this is not a graveyard. This was never a graveyard. Initially, when we came in here, all you'd see are the more mature trees. Mm. And the first thing we did is we asked the council, because this is council land, if they'd stop spraying. 
So there hasn't been any chemical spraying here for the last four or five years and they've been very supportive of what we're trying to do. So the first thing we did is we planted a hedgerow all along the yes, western side. It it's beautiful. Yeah, that's largely for the birds. It's a permacultural hedgerow. And the other thing then is we planted these um, flower banks up here. Yeah, because it's on a slight hill here, just on our left-hand side here. And what you've done, you've put in wild plants yeah, we have a number of things going on here actually and year by year we add to it. Uh, this here is a tree nursery and we've got about 130 saplings in there mm-hmm. and we're growing them there and when they're say waist high they'll be ready to plant out into the community. They're all native. Then here we've got a medicinal garden. Well, that's, that's the lemon balm there, is that the one where you... Uh, yes, you do and geranium. Yes. Geranium, yeah. yes, yeah. Yeah, get that it's lovely, lovely isn't it? Yeah. You, you can use that as well in, in culinary uses, is that right? Yes, correct. Um, one of our gardeners here, we've got volunteer gardeners who come here every Tuesday. One of them, Malgo, is very much into medicinal herbalism planting and she's she set this up with us. So and I see up here you've got teasel. Yes, this is a kind of a wild area here and we planted teasel, which is brilliant. That's spreading all over the place now. It's lovely. Birds love it. The goldfinches and that come in. I'm hearing a a robin there somewhere giving out, probably because we're up here (laughs) beside him. Tell me, what do the locals think of this park now? Everything has changed. It's been transformed for them as well. And during the lockdown and COVID, if you were to come down here now, it was full of people. I mean, they weren't all close together. They were sitting around, you know, on the lawn. But it meant that older people were able to come down here and feel safe. They could walk right around, stretch their legs. Young people came here. This is the only green space actually in this area. There's no dedicated park in this part of the city. So it was the only spot for people to go really, for people who lived in this area, you know. I know they've done something similar in Dublin in a number of places. I know Jervis Street, where Jervis Street Centre is. Now that used to be a hospital and when you looked out the hospital, what's now all slabbed, used to be a little park as well. And they've done it over in Thomas Street as well. And it just attracts so many of the local people to come in. And they love it. Mm, yeah, it's great. People sometimes come here for lunch to eat their sandwiches. Mm. Uh, we have events here as well, actually, in the summer. We invite all the neighbourhoods down. Yeah. We bring in seating and gazebos and that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really flourishing haven now, I have to say. Now, you mentioned vandalism earlier on. Since you've started this project, is there any vandalism? No, thankfully. In the beginning, a lot of people said to us, oh, you're wasting your time here planting because it's going to be destroyed. But we kept coming back week after week after week. And I think the consistency of that sort of changed the behaviour here. Mm -hmm. And there was one small incident where the stakes of the trees were pulled up and they burnt them and the fire brigade had to come because it set fire to one of the bigger plants up there. But other than that, no, there was nothing at all. Because when I look around, I don't see any damage to anything. I don't see any graffiti. All I see are some beautiful plants. I'm looking here at that silver birch there and the colour at this time of the year, it's only fantastic. And you've got down there what looks like an igloo. Uh, yes, we've a number of artists in the group actually, right. it just so happens and as I say we meet every Tuesday now we've stopped for the winter time but we actually established a dye garden over here on the left and that was artist Ashley Ellis 
So we established that only last year and all the flowers grown there will provide a dye for fabric. And we've had a number of workshops. And again, we would have invited in the whole community to bring fabric with them. And then they go through the whole process of dyeing all different colours from the plants. Uh, We had the artist Annie Hogg here. She extracted ink from some of the plants and she did ink paintings. And that there was kind of part of a structure we were doing for an exhibition recently. It's very quirky. It is quirky. It's a bit lopsided the way that we need to do it again. <laughs> well, it's maybe a, it's because we're standing on a bit of a hill, isn't it? Well, that's it? true too, yeah. It's a willow structure mm-hmm. and uh, we were going to put a load of other items made from willow and leaf. Uh, some of the ladies, they do beautiful sort of leaf drawings and they sew the leaves together into different shapes mm-hmm. and we were going to attach them to that. So uh, we have a lovely, thriving group. We've over 40 volunteers now. They, all, they don't all come Tuesdays mm. we usually have anything from about 5 to about 15 um, and would they be locals or are they coming from outside the area both actually we've a handful of locals and then we've people who come from other parts of the city and that's really nice as well because it means they can take back some of what they're learning here back mm. into their own areas and their own community gardens how did you get involved in green spaces for health well i came from a different background entirely i worked in theater all my life and i just came to the point where i wanted to change and go into another area and um, I'd always been interested in the environment. I began to do courses and yeah, I saw this job advertised and I applied for it and I got it and I was absolutely thrilled. I love it. It's just been fantastic. I love my job. So you won't be going back to theatre, no? No, no, that chapter in my life now is closed. (laughs) I loved it. It was great while it lasted, but no, I'm, I'm very much involved in this now. When I look around, we're pretty much surrounded by houses, although they're behind hedges and plants and that. What do they think of what's happened now to this park? I think attitudes have gradually evolved over the years, like we're here now, about three years, I guess, yeah. And, for example, we left the lower tranche of this park grow wild. We cut it only twice a year with sides. And originally people were concerned about the look of it, the look of the wildness. And, you know, we began to get phone calls and that. And eventually we cut down the grass. And then people were saying, oh, we miss the flowers. We yeah, miss the, the, the lovely grasses waving in the breeze and the sunlight coming through them. So I think, you know, it was just we did it. People got used to it. Now they love it. and They don't want to change. They don't want to change. We work very closely with the council. The council come in here and they cut the grass, not as regularly as they cut the grass in other places. Which is what you want. Exactly. And they've left passages of grass all around the park. So there's no longer this fixation with cutting the grass at the base of the trees because you know trees were getting damaged and that looks absolutely beautiful I don't think you can really appreciate that today now but in the summer it's beautiful Okay, the colours are not here today but I can see the plants and I know what the plants are and I can only imagine what it would be like in summertime Mm, it's lovely it's a blaze of colour frankly it's it's gorgeous and we're always trying to cater for the bees and the birds and uh, um, the other thing we do here as well is you notice there's a load of nettles up there there's thistles uh, we love the wildness and we're really trying to maintain that and keep mm-hmm. it not maintain it rather retain it <laughs> yeah. and uh, we also had ragworth here and you know some people still have this idea that ragworth is absolutely awful you have to get rid of it straight away well if you have horses if or cattle horses, or something yeah, here yeah of course you would but there's not a horse around here no and we did actually get the cinnabar moth so we oh, were yeah, able to yeah. show that to people which was yeah. tremendous The other thing I I want to tell you about, Terry, is we did a tree audit of the entire parish. We mapped, measured, identified 
every single tree that we we could in the parish with the School of Bees, the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences in UCC. That would be John O'Halloran, Dr John O'Halloran. Correct. Uh, I should say Professor John O'Halloran. Yes, and we were supervised by Dr Owen Latisse on this project. It took us three years actually. And how big is the parish? It's very big. As I say, it stretches from away over there from uh, the City Hall right up to UCC. Give me an idea. God, it would would take you about... square kilometres, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's sort of rectangular in shape. It is quite large. It is. It's one of the larger parishes in the area. Yeah. And we counted and uh, mapped, etc., 1,190 trees. And all the data went to UCC and some of the data we retained here. And one of the interesting things for us was that only 18% of the trees are native. Oh, so you probably have lots of London plains and things like that. Which are wonderful. We love all trees. Yeah. Um, we've no problem with those. But, but you've planted trees here. Well, yeah, it's it's completely sort of influenced our work now because we established the tree nursery for that very reason. Yeah. And we've planted hawthorn here, rowan, spindle, hazel, Oh, spindle's oak. such a beautiful tree. And, and a native tree as well. Exactly. And yeah. you don't see it too often around these parts. Yeah. And then we went everywhere we could in the parish to plant oak. There was only two oak in the whole parish that we could find and we've been lucky we have a very good relationship with the Quakers they have a graveyard just the next block down yeah. and then on my left we have Nano Nagel they've got over 100 trees there okay, yeah. That's she was the founder of the Little Sisters of the, um, the Mercy, Mercy Sisters, Sisters yeah. and then beyond them is St. Finbar's Cathedral and they've been fantastic as well we've and you're right in the centre of it yeah here now, now you've converted this old graveyard into a beautiful park have you given it a name? We're keen to keep the historical significance of this alive, this this graveyard. We're actually getting signage shortly because a lot of people come in here and you like, you wouldn't know it's a graveyard and I think yeah. it'd be lovely to keep it. And Park Owen is written in old yes. uh, Irish so, writing so, up there. So Park Owen Park, is that what it is? Yeah, Park Owen Park. There's a lovely ring to that as well. I mean, some older people in the community call, still call it St. John's Cemetery. Yeah, but, but it must be a long time since somebody was buried here. Oh yeah, I, I, I don't know when exactly. I know that there hasn't been anyone buried here since we've been here anyway, mm. for and sure. And there are no gravestones here either. I, I know in Dublin, where I mentioned about Jervis Street, they, they took the gravestones and they placed some of them against the wall so people could see them. I don't see any gravestones here. Have you removed them completely? I'd say the council removed them to Torrey Top Road, which uh, there's a beautiful cemetery there, St. Joseph's. Some of the headstones are embedded in that kind of sculptural piece down there, which is the cross of... Yeah. St. John of um, Jerusalem, the Crusaders, because this would have been the Monastery of St. John's. So there's great history to this area as well. Yes, this is a very old, old part of Cork. If you look at the old maps, um, you'll see it's kind of outside the Pale, the Pale having been North Main and South Main streets, but you could see you know, various monasteries and graveyards here in the very old early maps. Is it finished now or do you have plans for the future? Oh, we're going to keep going, Terry. There's still much work to be done here. Well, I don't think there is. I mean, <laughs> to me, it looks it looks perfect. Yeah, it's lovely. But, uh, for example, the hedgerow, we're going to start weaving the hedgerow. You can see it's gone quite gangly, so we're going to... Well, top it and then that, that'll strengthen it. Won't we're actually it? going to weave each branch oh, yeah. into each branch, if you know what I mean, all yes, the way like up. An old hedge lane. Yes, exactly. One thing I don't see as I'm looking around are any bird boxes. Oh, yeah. We've actually got two bird boxes installed, but they've been very discreetly installed, so you can't see them. And a local man, Mick Hickey, put those in there not so long ago. We brought an ornithologist down here, and he's looking at the swift population. 
Now, there's probably nowhere suitable here for the swifts, but he's going to give us some boxes for some of the smaller birds. Yeah, for the blue tits and robins and wrens and things like exactly, that. Exactly, yes. Mm. Yeah. So you've done a fantastic job here. You must be proud of yourself and the group. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm really thrilled. We're very proud of this. We all mm. love it. And they're a beautiful group of people. And um, I think what's happened here has spread out to all over the city to all our other gardens, really. It's, it, it continues to be very inspirational work here. Listening to those birds, it really is great for your well-being. Yeah, and I think we all know now that green spaces are really important for our health and well-being and reconnecting with nature. And that's exactly what you do when you come down here. You can take time out from the busy stresses of the city. Well, it's been a pleasure to come down, Maria. Thanks so much for having us. I won't forget my trip down to Park Owen, I can tell you. Thank you very much, Terry. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much indeed, Terry. Now, as I've already said, in May of this year, Mooney Goes Wild will have been on the air for 28 years. When you factor in its predecessors, namely Habitats and the Nature Line, we have been bringing listeners news about biodiversity loss and climate change for oh, over three decades now. And we have no intention of stopping anytime soon, of course. But it's great to see other voices and other programmes here at RTE joining us in bringing news of environmental challenges and solutions to new audiences. Our colleague Nikki Coughlin joined RTE Junior Radio in 2019, launching a special podcast which aims to investigate and explain the issues around the climate crisis and biodiversity loss in a way that is informative for children without terrifying them. Called Ecolution, it has covered biodiversity, politics, farming, eco-anxiety and activism and crucially it has given a platform to young people themselves and has allowed them to raise and address the environmental issues which are of greatest concern to them. We're delighted to say that Nicky joins us from his home now on the programme to tell us more about this very special award-winning podcast. So Nicky, thanks for joining us today. Where did it all begin for you and the programme? I've only joined RT in 2019 and when I joined the first project that was put in my hands was Ecolution. RT was doing a thing called RT on Climate in November of 2019. So I arrived in and I had five weeks to make five episodes, which is a challenge I think you're well used to yourself. Um, and so I had to do five episodes on climate and nature and exactly how it works in Ireland. And, and, and it, it talked a little bit about um, activism and the way in which kids have been become involved in activism, obviously biodiversity, a little bit about energy. It was kind of a bit of a, a, a five episodes to cover the entire basis, but it, it had such a good response. And I felt it, I met so many interesting people working in the climate and nature movement in Ireland that I said, this is something that we need to continue doing. And we're up to 64 episodes at this point in time, every single one of them crafted and hopefully there to meet the audience as best we can. It, it, it's a way to give young people a platform to talk about how they engage with nature and also how they're dealing with the climate crisis and the eco-anxiety they sort of have around it sometimes. Can I put something to you that a friend of mine always says to me? He -hmm. says, all I hear day in, day out, and Aina and Richard and Niall, you can join in on this, is climate change this, climate change that, biodiversity crisis here, biodiversity crisis there. And yet, he says... Not a single individual that he speaks to, and he is in his 40s, ever discusses climate change or biodiversity loss in conversation. What do you say to that? 
I would say that there's a bit of a misconception that all young people are concerned and engaged about this subject. I don't think all young people are engaged with the subject, but those that are, are incredibly passionate about it and incredibly knowledgeable. And the reason I feel Ecolution is as important a podcast to me as it is, is it, it, it gives us an opportunity to give a platform to young people about who really do care about this issue because it's 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 going to be the, the, the defining story of our time. I think we have a, a duty almost as media makers to to try and reach people about it because it's true. If, if people if people are complaining about it, that means maybe we're not doing the best job of explaining it. I think uh, talking about the climate crisis, you're, you need to talk with a note of hope tempered by reality. And I think that sometimes um, it, we're living in a world that's quite polar in that some people either are for or against. They believe in one thing or they don't believe in another thing. And actually, nature and the climate is such a complex subject. It's so hard to know where you land. And, and any solutions we come up with are going to be incredibly complex as well. So I think people have a difficulty engaging with complexity. And this is seriously complex. I do think that it is going to become the thing that defines all of it. I think we need to talk about it more. And we think we need to talk about it more across the generations because young people have a huge amount to learn from older people. Older people have a huge amount to to learn from younger people in terms of how they're dealing with it and how it's affecting them. He reckons we talk too much about it. There are other things going on. What do you say to that, Aina? What do I say to the fact that there's other things going on and that we shouldn't talk about climate change? I I say to that is that we only talk really about disasters. When COVID hit and we all had no vaccines and we all thought we were going to die, we spoke of little else. This Ukrainian war and Ukrainian people coming here, we speak of little else. If we lived in the Horn of Africa, if we were living in Pakistan, where we were being hit by the raw end, the rough end, the absolute change of climate change, we would speak of little else. We are so fortunate to be so far away from the impacts. So it's not hitting us. We get up in the morning, we go to bed at night and we don't notice that the amount of biodiversity in the country has decreased because we live in the city, we go on the train, we don't look out the window, we have our heads buried in earphones and we have our faces buried in screens. People are not noticing it. And then they hear this and they say, well, I have to notice that. What are they all going on about? It's worse things happen than that. And I, I have to buy my dinner and tea and I this and that and the other. So it's not immediately apparent because it will be a complete disaster by the time it gets to Ireland. But it's already a complete disaster in other parts of the world where I am sure they do speak of little else. Richard? It is evident to anyone of my age or even approaching my age that there's been a massive decline in biodiversity. For years I gave courses and lectures on birds mainly but also on mammals. Now I would hate to have to do that. I couldn't take people out in the field and show them the birds and animals like I used to be able to do and it's not that my senses are dulled. It's it's so evident. We used to have flocks of scoters out here in front of me. I haven't seen one in years. We used to have mergansers there are gone. We used to have the odd red-throated diver and uh, starlings even are declining. To somebody of my age, it is abundantly clear. The problem is that people who are too young will not have experienced the great seabird congregations in the summer or the great flocks of waders wheeling over the, the Shannon Estuary or whatever. It's, it's very hard to know what to do. I think people are aware, but it's like the great temptations. The temptation is always there to 
drive the car to eat the steak rather than the fish and things like that it's very hard on, in the spur of the moment it's the real saint augustine thing god give me chastity but not just yet it's a bit of there's a bit of that about it <laughs> you think so Niall? <laughs> i'm going to counter it by saying yeah i think that it's not spoken about enough yet i know okay. that um, sometimes it can seem <laughs> overwhelming and i think there's sometimes a tendency to uh, as as human beings to put our head in the sand and think oh i don't want to dwell on this just yet down the line down the line we know that elections are won and lost on immediate issues, issues that seem to have an immediate crisis and an immediate solution. And that's very understandable and those are very important. But when future generations are looking back at history, they will see this as a turning point. They will curse us for not doing more to stop this when we could have. Uh, I think we need to live up to the fact that the way that we live our lives in this part of the world is increasingly making life intolerable for people in other parts of the world. And it's only a matter of time before that comes home to roost. And it's also impacting our biodiversity in a massive way. The biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis are inextricably linked together. Uh, One is is driving the other and vice versa. And that's really important to note. Uh, it's not just a shame that we're seeing fewer animals and plants than we used to. That's not just a pity for its own sake. It's a sign that the ecosystem is breaking down. It's a sign that those natural systems are failing and we humans are part of those natural systems. We're not remote from them. We're an animal like any other. We like to kid ourselves that we're not, that we're somehow special but we really aren't and I think we need to bear that in mind. Future generations will dwell on this and will look back and curse us. So you think we need to speak about it more and more and more? Absolutely. I think that sometimes if people are uncomfortable a particular topic, they tend to notice it being spoken about everywhere. Uh, so, you know, in, 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 in November and December, I heard a, a huge amount of the media about a certain football tournament all the time. And I don't really care about that, but it was everywhere I looked, everywhere I listened to. <laughs> That's of no great interest to me. I think it was too much talk about football. Yeah, I, and equally, I can say I heard a lot about Meghan and Harry, and I have no interest in them, and they were wrecking my head, and I wasn't even watching them. <laughs> and what I would say is, in 100 years' time, nobody will care who won the World Cup. Nobody will care about the royal family of another country to that same degree but they will care about this issue. So Nicky, with his podcast Ecolution, is on the right track, Nile. Absolutely. William, you appeared on it with him. I did. I had the great pleasure of appearing on it myself, so I am biased, of course. But I think it really is important to engage, particularly with young people, many of whom do suffer from huge anxiety over this. I think a lot of older people don't realise just how disturbing this is for so many children at the moment. They're seeing disaster all around them. They're seeing the world coming apart at the seams in many cases. And a big part of that as well is that we're more connected than ever before. Mm. We're more aware of what's happening around the world than in any previous generation. And of course, that's going to weigh on people's minds. And and it's really good that this message is getting across to young people, but also that young people are being given a voice to speak out about it too, I think. Well, Nicky, you've got some clips for us. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's interesting, just following on from what you just said there, there's this phenomenon called shifting baseline syndrome. And it, it actually hits when it comes to t- dealing with young people because it, you know that phrase, I don't, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Well, actually, they don't know what's gone because they never saw it there in the first place. And that's something that I think you've referred to before. And it comes up an awful lot. The first clip I actually have um, is based um, around uh, Bull Island because we went to Bull Island. Bull Island, uh, the Dublin Bay biosphere runs from uh, Dalkey all the way up to Hoth. It covers a huge area. But basically, scouts from the 5th Port Dolly Mount are the first kids in Ireland to do a new thing called the Dublin Bay Biosphere Award. And so that first clip that we have here is essentially them talking about the nature that they find on the nature reserve out in Bull Island, which is one of the first nature reserves set up in the country. If you're up on the other side of Dolly Mount of the Bull Wall, you can see um, the seals. There's the sandbanks and they're often just like lazing about in the sandbanks and there's loads of them. Uh, I think they're the grey seals and they're really interesting to see. And you can also see mussels and razor clams washed up on the beach as well. I think learning about the Biosphere Badge, 
I loved learning about all the different species of birds that are here in Dolly Mount and that you can see around the biosphere. And once you know what's there, you can take action to protect it. We did a litter pick. We picked up rubbish on the road down to the beach so that the plastic isn't on the ground and it could harm nature. The bird could eat it and then die. And then animals might mistake it for something else, what they eat. And we learned about the six-spotted moth. It was a caterpillar. We saw it making its cocoons, so it can turn into the actual moth. I don't know how long it takes. Very nice indeed. Now, I mentioned the fact that Niall appeared in one of your shows, and I know that you have other regular contributors. Talk to me about Shane McGuinness. Shane McGuinness heads up Waterlands, which is a pan-European project aiming to re-wet and secure our bogs as the carbon sinks that they can and kind of must be actually at this point. I headed to Clara Bog and spent some time with him in Offaly uh, and it was fascinating to do that. But we also connected to the um, Farm Peat programme and they had a competition called Love Your Wellies, which was just a bunch of amazing children um, who wanted to talk about the bogs. And so this piece is them talking about what they get from the bogs and how much they experience from it. It's clear from all that you said that you get the importance of protecting our peatlands. Well, I feel like the bogs and peatlands are very important because they're a very significant part of uh, Ireland's culture and history and they also are very good for stopping climate change because they soak in all the carbon dioxide. We think our bogs and peatlands are important because they're a great habitat to uh, lots of different kinds of species and animals. Butterflies, midgets, dragonflies, moths and bees. Birds, including magpies, robins, starlings and wrens, and animals like deers, hares, rabbits, foxes, badgers, frogs, squirrels, to name but a few. They also are a good place for hedgerows and other plants to live. They took tens of thousands of years to form, so if we do lose them, it's going to be an amazing amount of time before we can ever get them back. Fantastic, and I believe that you conducted an interview with former Uchtaran the Heron, Mary Robinson. Yes, we were, I mean, it's, it feels like the crowning glory of, of evolution. Evie Kenny, who's the presenter of our programme now, had a chance to, from her kitchen, basically present evolution on be on a Zoom call with Mary Robinson and put the questions from the children of Ireland to the former president and chair of the elders, Mary Robinson. And Basically, in this clip, she talks exactly about why she thinks it's important that we have more intergenerational conversations about biodiversity so as we can show what we can learn from each other. Mrs. Robinson, I can't thank you enough for coming on Ecolution. Is there any final thought or call to action you'd like to share with us before we finish up? I don't really have a final word, except I think we need to do this more often, this intergenerational conversation. I'm a real believer in that. And I was glad to be invited to this particular podcast because I think... Maybe just a difference in the intergenerational conversation from when I was growing up. I had a beloved grandfather. He was a retired lawyer who taught me about justice. And he spoke about the cases he took for the tenants against the landlords. And I I loved that he didn't know how to talk to a child. So he talked to me as if I was an adult. And I got kind of oxygen of being treated as an adult. And I loved it. But I wouldn't have dreamt of saying anything to him. It was a one way. Now it's not. Because you young people are digitally smart, you're connected. And so the conversation is much more learning from each other. Never too young to lead, never too old to learn. So this intergenerational conversation I'm passionate about. She is so right, as always, I have to say. So just remind our listeners, Nikki, where they can find your podcast, Ecolution. 
If you search RTE Collusion, you can find it that way. You can get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. It also broadcasts every um, Wednesday at 7pm on RTE Junior Radio. Nikki, fantastic to speak with you again. Happy New Year and thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thanks so much, Derek, and thanks to the panel. You're very welcome indeed, Nikki. Well, that's pretty much it for the first programme of the new year and the first edition of Moody Goes Wild as we roll into our 28th year on air. Can you believe it? And as Richard Collins said at the top of the programme, what a true privilege it is for each and every one of us to communicate with you through this medium. We are very honoured indeed. And hopefully there'll be another 28 years. Right now, I want to thank all of our team, our researcher, John Bell O'Reilly, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, our expert panel, Aina Nilana, Richard Collins, Niall Hatch and reporter Terry Flanagan. We're going to leave you with a piece of gentle music, Whispering Grass, sung by Don Estelle and Windsor Davies. He with a deep voice. One of my favourite songs of all time. And I'm sure you're going to like it too. All right, guys, are you ready? On the count of three. A one, two, three. Happy New Happy Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Because the trees don't need to know. Mooney Goes Wild is presented and produced by Derek Mooney, 